Coming to you from Los Feliz, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm talking to a guy who wrote a book not about Los Angeles, about an entirely different region. It's called Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and the author is J. Ryan Straddle. He's also many things around here in Los Angeles. He's the editor-at-large at Unnamed Press, which is based here in Los Angeles. He volunteers and is on the board at 826 LA, and he does a whole lot more here. But I want to start out with... A Midwest story. It's secondhand. It's from my dad, who grew up in the Midwest, Illinois. Uh, and he came out to California as well, eventually, as many Midwesterners have. And he went back in the 70s to visit and saw this scene at the grocery store. It was two people, two locals, arguing over the vegetables they were buying, arguing over the freshness. One of the people in the grocery store was saying, no, this looks fresher. And the other one was saying, no, this looks fresher. I guess they were buying carrots. Kind of, you would see that at the farmer's market, but... This was in the frozen food section of the grocery store. They were arguing over the photos on bags of frozen carrots, whether which one was fresher or not. And I tell love me, it. I love it. how much does that align with what image you have of a certain segment of Midwestern food culture? This is the region where you grew up, too, after all. Well, I, I'm old enough to have remembered a Midwest where uh, we didn't have the choices that we do now in terms of fresh fruit and vegetables. So. In some cases, perhaps the photos on the bags of vegetables were uh, a, be- a, a little bit of a hopeful best-case scenario in certain months. That, that said, it's a very agile and robust agricultural state, and what we do grow there, we grow extremely well. Th- that said, I mean, my grandmother grew up canning peaches from Colorado, and growing up as a kid, I thought that's where peaches came from. I thought, like, this is must be a very robust peach state, you know, and... Uh, course later on you know heard the stereotypes about georgia peaches and so on but i as a as a midwestern i grew up eating colorado peaches and uh, once in a while when something interesting would kind of find its way into the local supermarket in hastings minnesota like jicama we would od on it we would just (laughs) eat too much jicama would it disappear as soon as it had arrived uh often yeah i mean i mean these these seasonal things uh these seasonal foreign things definitely did not have a, a permanence yeah, and so I think we felt like, oh, wow, there's this new thing called jicama. Let's just get as much of it as we can while it's what's around. You know, like the cream corn can wait. Like, we know we're good for that. For, yes. Yeah. That's good till yeah. kingdom come, but exactly. not the jicama. Yeah. Right, right. Part of me hopes we can defeat some stereotypes here about Midwestern cuisine, because yeah. uh, here you meet Californians now and again who might have a certain image of Midwest food as bland, as sort of mundane in construction and in in imagination. I mean, why is there that stereotype? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with Midwesterners are more understated in their presentation. Midwesterners are not particularly demonstrative people. I think many of us are raised to, if you'll forgive the colloquialism, to not toot our own horns. Uh, and so we might be doing something as well as anybody anywhere else. We're just not going to be as loud about it. So... I think that lends to some of the resiliency of some of the stereotypes. That said, Midwestern food has come a long way in my experience. In the 40 years I've been alive, uh, the Midwest culinary scene, the restaurants, the uh, farmers markets, the co-ops are much more interesting now than they were when I was a kid. I think that's true everywhere, perhaps, but I feel like there it's... It's been, a, it's been a subtler growth. And now wandering into Minneapolis, I'm accosted by all manners of Epicureanism, you know, and, and, and uh, interest in it. People speak about food, I think, in a more educated and engaged way than they were when I was a kid. Of course, the 80s in a lot of places were uh, still like the better living through chemistry era where we didn't look with circumspection on ingredients we couldn't pronounce. Now, what do you remember eating in that era in your childhood in, in Minnesota? I'd come home from school and, as a matter of fact, eat a TV dinner. Like, 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 Rip it out, yeah, unwrap, do detinfoil it, and then just pop it in? Yeah, yeah, as a snack before dinner. Like, I would eventually eat dinner with my family, but coming home from school at 3, 3.30 or whatever, I'd have a TV dinner. And I wasn't at all... There was no... I, I wasn't at all worried about the effects of this food on me. I, and there was no other than um, the most extreme dogmatic type. There was no movement against it. 
like in the culture I I was acquainted with at the time. So I didn't think anything of um, eating something that was highly preserved, full of sodium, calories, etc. Um, in the same way that I think people in the Midwest and people most places do now. Um, and then, yeah, then a few hours later we would have, you know, meatloaf, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, um, steak and potatoes, you know, hamburgers. On TV dinner. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we would have what I would call American food. Which yeah. Is, that's, this is a question I hadn't even considered beforehand, but, you know, American food, you say, okay, so you're talking about childhood in, in Minnesota and how it was sort of everybody's childhood is a pretty limited world, culinarily and otherwise, unless they have a very exceptional childhood. Yes. But now, of course, you've expanded You've expanded your horizons. Just before recording, we were talking about food tourism internationally you've done. And this is a question I always ask friends in other countries or from other countries. What is American food? Because I'm as curious as they might be, but they have more of an answer than I do. I legitimately don't know what American food is. When asked what American food is, what would you say? I... When I'm asked what American food is, I think of an experience I had in Munich, Germany, where I was walking past a Burger King, and they had a sandwich board out front for something they called the American Meal, and it was a bacon double cheeseburger in a Miller High Life, <laughs> and apparently it was selling well enough that they were, you know, uh, you know that they had printed up promotions for it. That they, they, Stars and stripes flapping behind the photo of this bacon burger in Miller High Life? No, even better. Uh, an outline of a rodeo cowboy. Oh my God. Yeah, right. so yeah. That's At the that, German idea of American food. Yes, yes. And and I felt like okay, the Germans are obsessed with uh, like the Western culture, uh, capital W, as in the, the cinema and the TV. The you know what we used to call cowboys and Indians. They they seem infatuated, or they they were at the time. You know, when thinking about Americans, that seemed to be a a trope they'd fall on. Uh, this was in 1996, though, so I assume it's evolved quite a bit. I haven't been to Germany since, but I remember going there at the time, you know, seeing advertisements for a rodeo, hearing about Germans learning the, uh, various Native American languages, and, and I think a lot of that uh, encroached my apprehension of Germans at the time. But uh, moreover, I was really struck with their alacrity at serving this particularly mundane meal, or a uh, meal I consider to be mundane. And... Of course, then turning it on its head and realizing that, oh, this is an exotic foreign dish here, this bacon double cheeseburger in a Miller High Life. Uh, and so and so sometimes I suppose it takes an outsider for us to understand what we are, an outsider's revelation or assumptions about us uh, brought to light. But um, that, that was one example of that. Um, when I have visitors from other countries here, it seems they often want to eat Mexican food. And that I consider to be, well, Mexican-American food I consider to be a genre unto itself. I mean, having eaten Mexican food in Mexico, understand the the uh, compromises that, well, all cuisines make once they cross our borders. Like, probably Chinese food being among the most extreme, you know, but also being one of the lengthiest uh, states of occupation, you know, and evolution within our country. Uh, and so I think Chinese food is very American. I think Mexican food is very American. Like, our American Chinese food and American Mexican food are perhaps the most American cuisines of all. Yeah. I don't know if you've tried Mexican food in Northern Europe, but I had a taco in Denmark one time, and it stands as... <laughs> I, I, I just had it because I knew how bad it would be. Wow. Like, it just yeah. doesn't travel well, does it, Mexican food? No, it doesn't. I had it in Prague. It was terrible. <laughs> what was wrong with it? a place called Buffalo Bills. There's, there's just too much dairy in it. It was, like, it was very bland, and it was just engorged with, with like, cheese. And it was just, it was just too... Uh, it was like a... A really bad northern Wisconsin version of Mexican food, which which I guess follows in a sense in terms of like Czech. Uh, I'm Czech myself, so the Czechs certainly settled Wisconsin, Minnesota, and um, I, I do sort of have a feeling that like well, Czech Mexican food would be uh, I don't know consistent with you know what what uh, the Czechs have done to cuisine in the Upper Midwest, which is uh, a lot of meat and dairy, and so they enjoy that aspect of it certainly. But uh, yeah, no, my. Uh, my Czech Mexican experience was it was a sort of faint gustatory reminder of Mexican food 
Yeah, in the way that like a, maybe like a pizza flavored cracker is redolent yes. of a pizza. Oh yeah. my! Yeah. <laughs> you say Northern Wisconsin Mexican food, and it puts me in the mind of sort of regionalism in Midwestern cuisine. I mean, how much you you of course grew up in the Midwest, yeah. and the kitchens of the Great Midwest is you could argue a. Midwestern food novel. Midwestern food is very important to it. How yeah. how deep did you go into the cuisine of your home region when writing this book? Oh, quite a bit. I researched all of it, uh, and by that I mean either cooked or ate or at least purchased or witnessed all of the cuisine I talk about. And going back a step, I think I, I think I've sort of realized perhaps the most American cuisine of all. You know, it could be something like I know I know it's Taiwanese strictly and not American, but something like General Tso's chicken. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 that said, going back to uh, like the research I did for this book, uh, like Ludafisk, for example, I'll I'll take that. I mean, that's a rather flagrant um, upper Midwestern Scandinavian origin dish, and it's uh, something I grew up with for a little bit as a kid. My great grandfather, who was Norwegian, was the uh, you know bearer of that cultural torch in our family, and we we had it around until he died. And uh, I dug some up and um, ate it for the cause uh, while researching the book. Now, does everybody think Ludovisk is as bad as your book <laughs> describes it as being? I think it depends who you ask. I have an uncle uh, uh, who is uh, also an. Uh, an older Norwegian guy, and he thinks Ludafis is just great. And if, in fact, if you ask him, he will tell you which church in northern Minnesota serves the best Ludafis during Advent season. And he's very opinionated about this. I saw him, um, you know, heated debate with someone else at one of my readings over this topic. Yeah. So, so if you want to know about Ludafis, ask and. Ask a Norwegian man over 50 in Minnesota, or like a man of Norwegian descent. Yeah. Find a certain segment of the population, and you will find people who have mastered that food. And this this concept of mastery of food, I mean, it pervades this book all through it. You can find different instances of different people mastering some aspect or as many aspects as possible of food, most notably, most centrally, Eva, uh, who is not obviously... Well, it'll be obvious to those who have read it, not yet to those who haven't. Is not the star I've ever seen, but is the? Would you describe her as the core of this book? Absolutely. Yeah, Eva's evolution is either touched by or touches every other character, and it was fun to explore a narrative where I can delineate a character's evolution, somewhat subjectively, through the eyes of the people whose lives she participates in. Uh, that, that to me was a lot of fun, and to do it chronologically, um, I think also lent some um, structure to the proceedings that I think might have made the book seem a little bit more like an assemblage, less like a novel. Had I not, I mean, there are certainly great examples of novels like Olive Kittredge, for example, um, A Visit from the Goon Squad, perhaps that are non-chronological that succeed as novels uh, using similar um, narrative tricks but for me I felt I'm telling a life story and I think the chronology reinforces that or the chronological mode of the narrative reinforces that and there is I don't know if I would call it some I, w I don't know if I would call it a form of suspense but reading the book each section that's each, each section drops the reader into usually the company of new characters. They don't know when they are or where they are necessarily. You know, probably the Midwest. It's probably following the timeline. But to me, what kept the pages turning, I don't even know how you... I want to know how you think about this device, but this sense of wanting to know how these characters you've just met at the beginning of this section, how this place, how whatever's going on, will end up relating to Eva. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I we, we catch on that it will sooner or later, Absolutely. but I don't know when that happens for every reader. Absolutely. Uh, well, due to the structure of the book, hopefully it happens earlier than later. Um, I mean, Eva gets a point of view chapter in chapter two. The point of view chapter in chapter three is someone that we've been introduced to. Um, and Eva is introduced, you know, about halfway through that chapter. And so I think... I'm instructing the reader how to read the book fairly early on. So by the time they get to a chapter 
from the point of view of, say, Pat Prager, where it's quite a while before Eve is mentioned, uh, I have the reader's trust that this, too, will fit. Yeah, that you don't have to distract yourself with wondering uh, at what point will Eva be introduced. I mean, you, I mean you, you can if that entertains you or if, uh, <laughs> or if it annoys you. But I think by then I would like the reader to be able to be comfortable with, um, with this narrative structure and be able to enjoy with uh, patience the individual worlds of the point of view characters so my hope was that the reader would become you know through then of being acquainted with this structure um, be comfortable with the later chapters that don't orient Eva as readily into their stories or do so very tangentially or very briefly. So we're still waiting for her name to pop up or someone sure, who might be sure. her. You know, you're yeah. in a game of Eva spotting, or not even yeah. just her, but how does it connect to Eva's family? And, yeah. you know, I, I bring up Eva's family, but this is not a conventional family necessarily. I mean, this is a character whose father dies when she's a baby yeah. and whose mother walks out on her because she doesn't think she can be a mother. Do you, do you have... Did you have an interest to begin with in a character who's somehow... The orphaned is not quite the right word because you know her aunt and uncle swoop in to parent her, but a character that's detached from her sort of immediate biological surroundings. Is that is that inherently interesting to you? Yeah, it is. I wanted to write narratives about people who live in unconventional family dynamics. Uh, I don't know if there's a nuclear family in the book. I didn't set out for there to be one in any case. That was premeditated in my case. That each scenario would envelop a family that was a fa- that was uh, to some extent a family of choice, a uh, family assembled either through necessity or desire on the parts of most of the participants. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I felt like that's been such an ever-present reality in my life. I didn't necessarily want to begin from the point of view of um, that as a norm of, of the conventional, you know, nuclear family unit as a as a norm in a story. So I did, pre, uh, yeah, I did premeditate that, and I did set out to have that kind of be an undercurrent, largely because Eva's family of choice is important to me, and Eva assembling a family of choice is important to me. Yeah. I apologize. It's a little difficult to articulate because I haven't been asked this specific question before, and it's one of those things that was a very lively undercurrent while I was writing. And as I said, even something I premeditated thinking about before I started writing in terms of wanting to have as a general thread and not just a uh, an element of the main character's experience. But some of the most effective personalities I've met out here in L.A., in terms of their relationships with people, came from these kinds of backgrounds and really assembled families of choice, some of which included biological family members, you know, or extended family. They weren't deliberately yeah. excluding them, no, but they mixed no. and matched to their own preferences. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, that, that always really intrigued me. And it, I felt it was important for me to have at the center of my story a character who's kind and successful and exists within this dynamic. Yes, it's, it's a book that you could call a family novel. It's been called that, of course, but it is a different kind of... If we're calling it a family novel, it's a different kind of family novel. And I like that you mentioned Los Angeles and how those how people have a lot of self-selected families here, yeah. family-type units they operate within. And it's it makes me think of, you know, people say they're going to sit down and read a novel of the Midwest, I feel like they have a sense of, this is going to be a family novel like what they would call an old world novel, where family is, is almost a crushing burden to be overcome. I mean, why did a lot of people come to the United States or West to get out of some of the obligations or expectations of family? Mm-hmm. But I, in a sense, then, it's this is a Midwestern novel without the sort of... With a, without that, that, that doesn't, or that deliberately avoids fulfilling the sort of, oh, we're going to hear about a, we're going to hear about 
uh, some farm family exerting a huge amount of pressure. You know what I mean? It's not a right. there's no, it's not a novel of familiar familial pressures. Is what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't. There are plenty of narratives out there about uh, familiar pleasures in the in the Midwest or in uh, Midwestern type settings. One of my favorites would be uh, One Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, who uh, you know I've adapted Shakespeare for that narrative, King Lear, and uh, put it in Iowa. And I thought, well, this is as good of a, a family farm story as I've read. Uh, but that said, you know, as effective as her novel is, I felt I wanted to do something different um, that would hopefully be, you know, similarly effective, but within a different realm of a character's inspiration or a character's pressure, a character's conflict. Yeah, because certainly a lot of, you know, family is a center of conflict for pretty much everybody. Uh, it's not a, It's not a... Obliquely Midwest. It, well, it's not a particularly Midwestern thing, even though there it does it it does and can take on you know certain artifices or realms that might be more particular to the Midwest or or rural America. You know, like you know, setting a family dynamic of conflict within a farm setting, like Smiley did. Um, you know, it is one example of that. But I felt. I wanted my characters' conflicts to come out of their their goals, their attempts to achieve a future for themselves. And that's something I, I'm acquainted with a bit more out here in Los Angeles, where it's a city of strivers. You know, it's a city that needs a certain amount of its dreamers to fail for the city to function properly. Yeah. And it's also a city where the strivers meet other strivers. And there's... Uh, communities formed around supporting each other and you know a group of friends might become might all become successful but at different points or to different extents and the sort of um, ways in which relationships evolve because of that was interesting to me and I, I I'm that said I'm um, I thought it was a lot of fun to set that within the Midwest to set that kind of dynamic within the Midwest, within people who, well, well, not just within people, but within a realm in which that is possible, you know, and certainly with our, you know, dilation of uh, food conscience and consciousness over the last few decades, um, the Midwest is as likely a place for a star chef to emerge from is anywhere. Right. It's an, it's an ambitious world, the world yeah. of chefs, and as yeah. you mentioned, Los Angeles is a city of strivers, so you feel that ambient ambition. Yes. I would imagine wherever you are at a certain level in food, you feel that ambition. And it's, it's a quality common to the cities I like to go to, Los Angeles and others, that you do get just a sense of ambition in the air, that there is striving. I mean, is that... I haven't spent actually any time in... in say the Twin Cities, I mean, is that, is that not something you feel as strongly when you're in cities like those? Is there less of it in the air, or is it just a matter of you have to be in specific places to feel it? Wow. Um, I haven't spent much time in the Twin Cities as an adult, uh, so I don't feel qualified to talk about the Twin Cities in a general sense when it comes to a a sense of ambition pervading the the city, but that said, Los Angeles does have it does have a strength in a number of disciplines and pursuits that are somewhat unique. You know, the film and TV industry is a, quite an attractor. The tech industry, there's a lot of. I think there's a higher ceiling here, and so. I think you attract a different kind of striver in a city like this. I mean, there's an awful lot of ambitious people in the Twin Cities. I'm still friends with an awful lot of people from high school, and many of them chose to stay or return, and many of them are quite successful at what they're doing. Cities almost by definition are places where ambitious people go. It doesn't matter if it's Los Angeles, Absolutely. Minneapolis, St. Paul, wherever. Absolutely. I think it's just more apparent in a city like this because the fields in which people strive for have you know, ridiculously um, long odds and and big rewards. 
whereas um, the typical industries in which people enter in the Twin Cities are, um, you know, perhaps safer bets. But that said, um, you know, everyone wants what's what's best for themselves and their family, and and I think one's notion of success is also to some extent rooted within the politics of whatever realm they're in and I enjoyed exploring that in the Pat Prager chapter where the stakes are a $75 Target gift card right. you know, a very, a, people think of when they meet her they'll think stereotype Midwestern housewife they'll gain nuance as they go along but I mean it's no mistake that she seems like a cartoon at first right? Sure Sure, and I don't mind sort of lulling people into that and then challenging their expectations later on. Um, yeah, I think by initial appearances, you know, she does seem to be the very pious, um, safe Midwestern woman, but just like all of my characters, I wanted her to be challenged and I wanted her to be able to rise to that challenge. And that was a lot of fun to see. And to watch her also, watch her machinations within the politics of her realm was exciting to me. After all, a bake sale is as political as any place. Yeah, and uh, the way she enters like the bake sale judging competition and sizes up the judges and sizes up her competition, I felt well, this isn't so different from any other field. Right. Like, strategy is strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. The, there's a type of ambitious person that I hear a lot of from my peers I hear spoken about in jealous terms. I mean, I think it's the kind of ambitious person that Eva, the central, the core character of this book, the chef whose mastery increases as it goes, is. It's the ambitious person who knows what they want to do from day one. I mean, is that how you consider Eva? How yes. there was never doubt? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is? Do you know such people? What are the... Who are the people who never have doubt about what they, what their, as one other character in the book would say, what their thing is? I knew I always wanted to be a writer. I did doubt my ability to do it well many times, but that's that doesn't make me unique as a writer. Uh, yeah, uh, I think choosing to become a writer is also choosing bouts of crushing insecurity. Uh, and so. Yeah, once I entered my teenage years and in my 20s, I succumbed to that with a little bit more willingness and let other things get in the way of my writing. And I didn't really start taking it seriously. And by taking it seriously, I mean submitting it out to the world, sending short stories out to literary magazines and the such until my late 20s. Yeah, so even though I'd been writing my whole life, I didn't translate that ambition into action for quite a while. I mean, I did read stories. I was uh, at Northwestern. I was uh, I enjoyed readings. I would uh, write a short story and read it, but I, I wasn't disciplined as a writer. I didn't enjoy revising my stories. Yeah. There's there's that way of there's that way of playing it where you know what you want to do. Yeah. Sometimes you let yourself be delayed for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, there's good reasons for that too to, yeah. to let that happen. Uh, writers, I feel like, you know, people say sometimes you hear. I don't, I don't even know who to attribute this to, but a lot of quotes about how no one should write a novel until they're 30 or until they've reached, done a certain number of things, like don't put pen to paper, don't even bother. Whereas with Eva, she, I feel like rarely in the book do I see her do something non-food related. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is almost a different category of person, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And I'm intrigued by those people. Like, they're one in a thousand, perhaps one in ten thousand. And... I can't. You can't help but be impressed by them. I mean, even if they're wrong, they're decisive. Right. Yeah. Like even when they make mistakes, it's within it's within the realm of their um, their value system. Yeah. For lack of a better term, I feel like it. One of my favorite Eva chapters was the Octavia chapter, where you get to see her make mistakes. You get to see her behave like. A young woman in her twenties, uh, like make bad relationship choices, and and Octavia is sort of an acquaintance from a dinner party of hers. Yes. yes, and not a not a very pleasant. I mean, we get access to her consciousness, and this, these are not first person 
narratives, but they are very close to the character, yeah, and we get maybe we get closer to Octavia than I wanted to. But I, I was right. glad to see inside that mind, though. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I know people like Octavia, and it was fun to write about them. Um, that said, um, I do think Octavia reveals something about Eva that Eva wouldn't necessarily want revealed. Uh, because she is looking at Eva with a very critical eye. Yes, exactly. Jealous eye. And also, Eva looks up to Octavia. And Eva's attempts to appeal to Octavia, I think, reveal a little bit of it, uh, the slightest bit of insecurity in Eva. Yeah, it could be read like that. But overall, Eva really wants to impress this older woman that is regarded as a talented chef within this community of friends that Eva wants to be a part of. And how many of the characters around Eva in this novel really understand her, would you say? Wow. I think her... Well... That's a really good question. I think Brock and Randy do. I think Brock and Randy Those do. Those are her cousins? Yeah, I think they do, absolutely. I think Brock in particular loves Eva to death. I think she views Eva like a sister. And I think Eva was very lucky to have Charles and Fiona move her down to Des Moines to be near those cousins and grow up with them as friends and as influencers. And Randy in particular as well. Randy's very protective of Eva. Randy hooked her up with the hydroponic setup. Uh, teenage boys sometimes have. Yeah, with uh, which Eva grows hot peppers and not something more illicit. Uh, even though her hot peppers are arguably more dangerous to society than... Uh, she does weapon- <laughs> She weaponizes them to an extent. Yeah, she yes. does. She does. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, I feel those cousins in particular. Then also, she's a very minor character in the book, but her, her friend Marino Bryant, who's a constant for her, who she meets at her first restaurant job and who helps her get another job. And she's kind of a background figure, but she's there. Like, And I think Elodie Pickett, even though Elodie kind of fades away at a certain point, it's a friend that's kind of goes her own way and isn't outgrown but it's just sort of you know like as, as happens with any and any friends when uh, the two of you share an experience as young people and then one of you moves one place one of you moves the other and it's just not a constant figure in their life but perhaps still very close to her heart still I'd say her three closest friends would be Brock um, Randy and uh, Maureen O'Brien because of the proximity and age not necessarily in Maureen O'Brien's case yeah. but the cousins just because they're in the same sort of league uh, in terms of when they were born and when they when they when they come up uh, they come up together in the chronology of this book yeah that might have something to do with it in terms of understanding Eva not just in terms of her ambition what she needs to succeed but also understanding kind of where she fits into this world that she finds herself in and helping her with that helping her with the logistics of that world you know, it seems that when Brock and Randy are brought in, they use what talents they have to continually enable Eva and, and serve her in the fashion that she needs, whether if it's, like, security, you know, as in Randy's case, you know, like, vetting the potential um, pop-up supper club guests to, uh, you know, helping out in the kitchen and, and learning that discipline to be of use to her and um, understanding what's in season, how to use what's in season, you know. What are the what attributes to look for in something that is in season? You know, I think it's a, I think it's a, dyna, a dynamic realm that Eva's in. But I think the people that she pulls in, I think she's also very sympathetic towards kind of lost boys like Jordy Snelling. You know, I think I think she sees Jordy for what he is and is very sympathetic towards him. Yeah. It's one of the more troubled characters in the book when yeah. we meet him. But, you know, the way you just talk about Eva now, who, and for those for those who haven't read the book yet, I mean, by the end of the novel, she's got an empire going. You know, yeah. she's one of the best-known chefs in America, let alone in the Midwest. She's running, as you say, these pop-up dinners. And people are paying, what, $1,000 a head or more, $5,000 It's a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And um, the real world is, I think, catching up with this novel pretty quickly. Like, yeah. we're seeing phenomena of on this order. But she is... In the book, in some sense in the book, she seems so almost innocent, innocent of everything but food, and food is the one, food is the one, is the way she sort of bores into life, and everything else falls to the side. She, but then in this, this other half of her, she's almost a, a savvy mastermind, and the way she uses, not uses sounds pejorative, but she makes use of the people around her yeah. to create this empire. I mean, she's sort of a... You could framed a little differently. She's almost 
forbidding as a businesswoman. Yes, yeah? she's got a scary level of skill on that level in yeah. some sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think she figures it out. I think she watches the people she works for when she has bosses and figures out what they're doing right and what she wants to imitate from them and leaves the rest. I think like when glad she's using these powers for good. I guess is yeah, what I would say. Absolutely, yeah. And I was really infatuated with writing that kind of narrative. I feel that the American fiction story is full of characters that uh, became successful through being an asshole. Hell, our nonfiction is full of it. Yes. Yeah. You know, but it seems to me to be a story that we seem content with telling ourselves t today in our current era in the early 21st century that perhaps to be successful in like our version of capitalist America at this point in time requires such compromises of a person that perhaps some of us would feel like our souls our emotions and our families would be better served if we weren't Steve Jobs or if we weren't Daniel Plainview. Or, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, a lot of people will. Yeah. You, you talk about the characters who become successful, yeah. helped by at least their being assholes. People will think of, you know, Ayn Rand's novels. Yes, uh, right. Say, like in, in the Fountainhead, that with the architect yes. Howard Rourke, who right. blows up his own buildings because they're not up to, they've been compromised, you know. But I feel like Ayn Rand would not entirely disapprove of Eva. Yeah. Like this I is agree. a woman who's powerfully actualized herself and now, like coming from nothing as well so yeah. in a way like I'm picturing Ayn Rand's Kitchens of the Great Midwest it's a different book right, but it's right, not right, right. this is not somebody of, of whom she would disapprove yeah probably not yeah but I think this is the sort of person that Bernie Sanders would also approve of right which is a rare yeah. gap to cross <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 because she doesn't well she doesn't alienate people to get her way I think she just has sort of a way of working around things that are in her way. Yeah. Now, she, you have her born in the early 1980s in this yeah. book, and you follow in the her... In the 1980s, actually. In the 1980s, yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get this straight sooner or later, but... You follow her through from birth to the modern day, you know, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. And yeah, 2015. Tell me what it was like for you to revisit those years to sort of go through the time of your childhood up till now like what what did it take for you to get in the mindset of that how much were you thinking of being in those times when writing scenes in the times oh very much and i was very attuned to what i would consider what i felt i would use as cultural signposts for those eras i mean certainly there's a lot of pop culture in the book uh music in particular uh but given this realm i mentioned a lot of restaurants too there are a lot of restaurants throughout the book that don't exist anymore that I included intentionally as signposts of the eras that they represented or uh, and also the era being represented in the in the novel um, and it was fun to do that it was fun to think about oh what were the big restaurants in Minneapolis in the 80s what were the big restaurants in Minneapolis uh, when Will Prager was in high school that his friends would have gone to um, yeah it with, with few exceptions, all of the restaurants mentioned are real places or were. When you mentioned Will Prager, who is very briefly Eva's boyfriend in yeah. high school, and there, she has a culinary formative moment at yeah. this restaurant, the Steamboat Inn, which you worked at, yes? Yes, yeah, well, that's what right. What was that like? That was great. Uh, I worked there as a janitor, and uh, as such, I became acquainted with the kitchen, and uh, the kitchen I attempted to describe in the book, and um, the menu, and... Uh, also, the sort of behind-the-scenes workings of a restaurant that was regarded at the time doesn't exist anymore as uh, the fancy place to eat in that region of Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right, and I think we've all had these moments where you describe it evocatively how you, you've... It's high school. You don't have a credit card. You've brought a yes, certain yes, amount of cash, yes. and you're adding up in your mind the whole time. Yeah. What's she going to get? So yes. what do I have to get yes. so that it's that much cheaper? And they come right up to the limit. I mean, yeah. it's... Really, it's a coming-of-age moment I've, I haven't seen a lot of in books. Is that Was that to you, uh, were you writing a scene that you'd seen before, or was this to you, too, something that was more from real life than, you, than something that you'd seen in fiction ever? That particular scene happened to me. Oh I, did, I did that. But, so you you but paid a waitress $3 for a tip or whatever? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, less. Um, but I, but I also uh, hadn't yet seen it represented in fiction, yeah. and so the confluence of those two things felt to me appropriate to express within Eva's story. That would be a lot of fun to have Eva be taken to a restaurant and um, have her very well-intentioned companion. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, fail to pay for the meal. <laughs> yeah, I, because I remember that the tension I felt in that yes. circumstance. I was you can't enjoy us. Yeah, I was with my high school girlfriend Stacy, and we uh, went to a restaurant called Strings, which only existed in Minneapolis for a brief brief amount of time, and it closed shortly after this incident where I couldn't make the bill. That, that was the they needed just that amount of money to 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 make their month, and you couldn't provide it. That's what happened. Believe me, in the mind of a teenage boy, that seemed perfectly plausible. <laughs> yeah, like it, my world was still pretty small then. I felt the cause effect relationships and meaning in all of my actions, and I was certain that my thirteen dollars was the camel breaking straw <laughs> in the demise of strings. And I, I'm sorry, Strings. <laughs> this is one of the experiences now you, you had in, in real life growing up that helped to make you sort of more aware of food. And it's one of the experiences Eva has to just keep... She's already well on the path to this food mastery. But tell me, I mean, what... In, in this day and age, in the early 21st century, you know, now more than ever... Food is, people want to master something about food, even people who have no intention of being a chef or even really cooking at all. Yeah. What's so attractive to us about gaining as much knowledge as we can or seeming like we do have a lot of knowledge about food these days? Because it seems like this is, I don't know if there's a precedent for how much amateur interest in food there is now. No, I've never seen more. And first of all, we all have to eat, you know, sure. yeah, unless you're an ascetic or a or in really um, unfortunate financial circumstances, you're, you're going to eat. And I think access to skill in the kitchen is fairly egalitarian. You don't need a lot of fancy um, appliances to cook well. Um, it's something that you can practice uh, with a little bit of money and gain quite a bit of proficiency at with uh, with 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 a fair amount of time but minimal resources i think it and i think that's appealing to people of all ages uh it's you know they're certainly kids who are enjoying opportunities to um make a name for themselves in the kitchen you know at the time i started writing this book there wasn't yet a uh like a Master Chef Junior Edition or whatever they call it. I, I've only caught it in passing. I know it exists. You know, I only just recently bought a television, so I'm, I'm becoming acquainted with, uh, with how um, food culture is expressed through, um, you know, the Food Network and the um, other channels that show um, uh, culinary shows. But at the time I started writing this book, it did sort of feel a little speculative, if not slightly magical realist in some of its uh, imaginings. Now it feels like historical fiction. It, it feels a bit like, particularly when it comes to like Eva being 11 and being a foodie. You know, I thought, oh, this is pretty strange. I mean, I didn't consider it out of the realm of possibility. Certainly, I had never met an 11-year-old foodie, but I, I'd imagined that they existed. When I wrote the book, I said, this, I'm certain this person exists. It's well, in the realm of plausibility, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and now I know they exist, like a thousand times over. I'm, yeah. Some have read your book, I, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I hope their parents let them. I know the language is a little rough in areas. <laughs> yeah, but it's... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, parents. Oh, well, uh, kids are going to hear it sooner or yeah, later. Yeah. Might as well hear it from you. Yeah. And Brock's ultimately a good influence. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, yeah, uh, Brock, this, this cousin, this younger... Wait, uh, sorry. This is she's the Eva is the younger cousin yes. of Brock. I wanted to make sure I phrased that correctly, not Absolutely. to give. There's, a, there's going to be people listening who can't quite put the family tree together yet oh, if they haven't right. read the book. Yeah. But yeah, there's an eight-year age difference. Yes, there's an eight-year age difference, and Brock, as she grows up, she just gets sort of more profane and and acerbic. I mean, yeah. this is is this a type of person you've encountered from time to time? This because I felt like. Uh, Absolutely, I, I have too. But it's sort of there's there's a sense in which, um, in a novel, you know, she's there for a reason. In life, someone like Brock, you just kind of want to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a midwestern stereotype. 
but I met them in the Midwest. Yeah, they're, that's, they're everywhere these days. That's where I met my first Brock was was at Northwestern. Why is she so off-putting? I feel she has a lot of personal frustration. Her father abandoned the family some years back, and her mom is in total denial about that. And I think she's as frustrated. She thinks he's on sabbatical. Says yeah. he's on sabbatical yeah. in Malta yeah. for year four. Right, right, yeah. It's a long sabbatical. The university must be equally frustrated. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think she's as. I think she's more disgusted with her mom's denial than her dad's abandonment. And I think she's actually starting to realize, or starting to feel, that her mom is so crazy. Of course, their father abandoned the family, and she resents her mom's. Quite simply, I, yeah, she's starting to resent her mom. And I think in a more profound way, and perhaps in also in a more meaningful way, I think she's st- she perhaps she feels she's starting to see what in her mom drove her dad away. Uh, yes. I think she's starting to feel that. Wait a second. Our father didn't abandon our family. Our father abandoned my mom, <laughs> and I'm starting to see what about my mom drove him to do that. Right. And but that said, she's still very sad about it. I mean, she still feels, I think, in, in her heart of hearts, also abandoned by him, but somewhat betrayed. But she doesn't have the comfort of a mother who who sees her daughter's pain, you know, or who has the same emotional experience that, that either child is having. You know, the mom can't look at Brock and Randy and say, I know what you're going through. Like, we're all going through this together. The mom is just refusing to believe it happened. And so that, I think, really stunts the emotional growth of her kids uh, within the family realm. And I think it's had the immediate effect of making Brock sort of embittered and uh, and just sort of like, if not nasty, just sort of like unhappy. Right. Yeah. I mean, the chapter that we see, that we are exposed to the brunt of Brock's nastiness, she's in college. She's a college student, and she is she is in a sort of troubled time of life and comes back to her dorm to find that Eva has run away from home to crash with her in her yeah. dorm room. And it leads to a comical section in the book, of course, where Brock finds out Eva has made herself tolerant of huge amounts of spiciness. She can take anything, essentially, any pepper known to man she can eat, so they go hustling, uh, making bets she can eat nuclear chicken wings or famously hot chili or what have you, and they win a lot of money that way. More money than you would expect to win doing that, I guess. Uh, A lot of money for an 11-year-old, which she is at that time. And leading up to that, we get scenes of, or at least descriptions of, Eva building up her tolerance and lamenting that she's burned out so many of the receptor cells to feel spiciness that she's got to just jack up the quantity. She's got to engineer spicier and spicier peppers just so she can feel the peppers. I mean, this mindset seems to me very close to the mindset of a drug addict. Was it to you when writing this? Yeah, it was. And I think that this is something that Eva realizes about herself and backs away from. She addresses it briefly in her conversation with Will in the following chapter about how... uh, Oh, I used to be really into spicy food, and I'm not anymore. You know, like I, it's, I'm not into that stuff anymore. Right, yeah, exactly. like it's like she was saying heroin or something. Right, right. And a, and just one more note about Brock. I think one of the reasons Brock feels that she has to be so frank is that her mom isn't. She just views her mom like living in a haze of lies and um, self delusion. And Brock feels that she's not going to do that. She's not going to end up like her mom. She's going to address the world with brutal frankness and and she certainly does and it doesn't prevent her from making friends but it certainly rubs people the wrong way you know whenever you meet that kind of person who says I tell it like it is you know and, right. yes. yeah that's it's never a good sign not always yeah, yeah. It's, and you know it's probably not <laughs> it's probably not how it is the way they're telling it that's why they have to say I'm telling it exactly. like it is because you know it's going to be exaggerated yes exactly exactly or it's going to be like pointedly nasty or hurtful or uh aggressive. Right. Yeah. 
You know what? You know, no one ever says, I'm going to tell it like it is. And then they proceed to shower someone with compliments. <laughs> yeah. That usually doesn't happen. No, yeah. it, it does not. Not yeah, at all. It's a preface, it's a preface for uh, redressing. It's, yeah. like, it's like no offense. If you hear no offense, you're about, you're about <laughs> you're to get greatly offended. offended. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, back to that's a very perceptive comment about uh, Eva's affection for hot chilies and, you know, being um, an adjunct to a, a family with addiction issues, as well, many families are, not all. Uh, I think she is aware of, you know, the what she's experiencing. I mean, certainly, she certainly the way I described it, I feel like she experiences the sensation of extremely hot peppers the way an addict might experience alcohol or drugs. Mm. But I think one of the first things she does, and she does it, you know, not within the realm of the the novel, but um, between chapters, is uh, check herself and um, develop her personality through employing some restraint, which I think she continues to do. Yeah, I think when she finds herself critiquing Will Prager for putting Tabasco sauce on his food, she's doing so in the same way that like a sober person might feel a little bit, you know, circumspect about judging someone who is like ordering a third shot of whiskey at the bar, almost sort of saying like, you shouldn't do that. Like, I don't want to tell you how to live, but... That's you know, but that said, I'm I'm acquainted with that impulse, and uh, like if, if uh, right, if this elementary canal could talk, yeah, if it, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, reading reading about Eva's upping the ante on herself of the spicy foods, mm. it reminded me of something that's pretty easy to fall into in Los Angeles, which is it can be just literally finding spicier and spicier foods in the city to eat, mm. or you know sort of the more exotic than thou thing you know I know I ate something weirder no I ate something weirder yeah. you get into this competition even with only yourself yeah. and it doesn't ultimately really lead anywhere but it still I think in Los Angeles I feel like you'll agree with this tell me how much you do or don't but this city is not experienceable to any meaningful extent if you're not ever expanding the foods you're trying in it does oh. that make sense oh absolutely yeah for starters, I agree with Jonathan Gold that some of the best American versions of just about any food, any number of various, um, like you know, you know, Ethiopian, Korean, m- many parts of Mexico, uh, are found here in Los Angeles. You know, to deny yourself the opportunity to uh, participate in that, to experience that, I think is to what a experience this city half blind or yeah or at the very least a very like, muted and um oh what's the word? a sanitized or um an aseptic version of the city perhaps if you're a if you, you if, wonder what they're getting out of it uh, out of los angeles at that point absolutely because more so than many american cities the confluence of people that lived in this area and the in the Perhaps people that continue to move here have created a food environment that's just unparalleled in its diversity and its and its depth. Yeah, in my experience, I mean there there are other cities that challenge it or equal it in other ways. You know, uh, but Los Angeles, no, I. I mean, for all the things there is to do here, you can have probably more singular experiences with the ingredients in the food than just about any other um, sensory pursuit. Uh, and I wanted to bring up the ingredients as well because, I mean, we're here at the, at the doorstep of the world's most agile agricultural region. Yeah, and we're, you know, boulders throw from the port of Los Angeles. So like, there's virtually nothing you can't get here. And an awful lot of it is is, is going to be fresh and Many of it, like I can't, I can't even begin to list all the things that I see at farmers markets here, that I saw at farmers markets here when, my first year in LA that I'd never heard of, like fruits and vegetables, and you know things I'd never 
never even seen before. And it's, uh, it'd be a real shame if I just looked at it and said, oh, that's not for me, you know. <laughs> I'm live here for 17 years and I'm never going to try a cheramoya. <laughs> or a pluot, you know. <laughs> I, there, was, there was this meme going around on Facebook a bit recently where it was just an image saying something like, here's what the average American spends eating out and here's what it costs to travel now. Here's why you can't travel because you're too lazy to cook. And I was like, hold on. Uh, and I was like, like, I, I like traveling a lot and I like eating out a lot, yeah. but I've never, I wish I, I've never regretted a dollar I've spent in a restaurant and I wish that I'd spent more to this point in restaurants. Like there's this, I don't know if this is American only, but there's this sort of piety like that it's almost a sin to eat out, especially if it's a dish you could semi-replicate at home. And I, my response to you could make that at home is always, I couldn't make this at home. I couldn't make the experience at home. I couldn't be exploring the city at home. My friends can't all fit into my home. I mean, yes. do you get that sense? There is a bit of a sort of, it's... For all the food culture there is today, for all it's grown, for all the excitement about food, there's still a vague sense of puritanism about eating in restaurants. From he here and there, not overpoweringly so, but I still feel it. Absolutely, Colin. I'm glad you brought that up. I grew up in a house that didn't eat out often. But of course, I also grew up in a town that wasn't flush with options, um, restaurant-wise, that um, offered menu items that we couldn't make at home uh, to eat out quite frequently in and around Hastings, Minnesota was to um, experience an awful lot of things that you could replicate at home. There wasn't a, a great bounty of ethnic variety. And when there was, it was often you know, somewhat muted by uh, its hybridization with uh, American tastes. Yeah, you know, the Chinese buffet and so on. That's mm -hmm. very, sure. kind of a a staple of yeah, the Midwestern Sea Mall. Right, right, yeah. Orange chicken and so on. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, we did enjoy that kind of thing when we had it, but more often than not, you know, we ate at home just because my dad didn't feel like spending $17 on prime rib or steak at uh, Gregory's Fine Dining or a Wiederholt Supper Club because he could make that. Yeah, or attempt to. Yeah, and as kids, we were just fine with that. I... I did become really interested in eating out as a teenager, and in fact, that's what I spent most of my time doing once I could drive. My high school girlfriend, Stacy, and I would drive up to the Twin Cities regularly and try out new new kinds of ethnic cuisine. I mean, uh, varieties of foods that were new to us anyway, um, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that was my first real experience with Oh, virtually everything uh, that I now eat regularly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's simply because I grew up in a rather homogenous realm. But that said, I mean, that's all evolved. Um, I mean, certainly the Twin Cities feel a lot closer to Hastings now than I think they did when I was growing up. They feel closer. Um, you know, people are interested in making more interesting food. Um, at home and in restaurants closer to Hastings. I felt like, you know, my childhood was within a realm where, you know, certainly we didn't often eat out for economic reasons, but also, you know, as I put it earlier, um, my dad in particular just felt like, oh, what the local restaurants have to offer isn't something that we can't easily replicate. Yeah, so... Let, let's 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 do that at home. And now I think that's less true in Minnesota. Yeah. And you know, finally, this this brings to mind this issue in well, issue is is understating it. This grand narrative in Los Angeles history. You know, when the city was booming in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, through the early half of the 1960s. The story is, you know, it's, it was all Midwesterners coming, or for the most part Midwesterners. You read about these picnics in Long Beach where it's just, just Iowans, and you go under the tree corresponding to your county, uh, for example. And people seem to agree now, especially since immigration reform in the mid-60s, that we're no longer in the age of Midwestern Los Angeles, but that there was an age when the Midwest set the tone of Los Angeles, wow. especially around the Second World War and a bit after, a bit before. Um, but I wonder, 
Do you get the sense, since I assume you still go back to the Midwest with some frequency, do you get the sense that that that's really true? I mean, is there a, is there a way that you still feel the Midwest here, or is it more like, is the more dominant feeling that the Midwest has Los Angelized to an extent and become more oh, wow. diverse and more, I mean, culinarily or otherwise, which has been, which do you feel more, that, that the Midwest has come to Los Angeles in a sense, or that Los Angeles still reta- retains traces of the Midwest? A bit complicated, I realize, but does, do either of those ring true to you? Wow, that's a really excellent point. Um, sometimes I get asked, how do you like the people in Los Angeles? by people in the Midwest. And I say, I like them very much, but an awful lot of my friends in Los Angeles happen to be people from the Midwest and the South. And so I feel like, well, I'm thousands of miles from home, like home has come (laughs) to commune in this place with me. And the sort of people I would have liked hanging out with in Minnesota and Illinois, like a, a lot of very smart, kind, ambitious, creative, and inclusive people. There are some mean people from the Midwest who moved here as well, but I'm not friends with them. Right. It's a big city. You can avoid them. Yeah. And there are also ambitious, creative people and mean people who stayed in the Midwest. And I think the ambitious, creative people I know in the Midwest have, to an extent, uh, Los Angelized Minneapolis and St. Paul. You know, I I don't want to just use that particular demonym to describe the evolution because I think the the way in which people are expressing their tastes is not exclusive to Los Angeles, even though um, well, expressing their taste in terms of like oh, this new realm of uh, Epicureanism, you know, and food conscience and uh, commitments to eating local uh, you know, and eating, eating healthy but also in a uh, in a way that's either seasonal or local or um, uh, conscientious. Um, I mean, that's uh, that's happening everywhere. But I do feel that a lot of the really smart, nice people I know in Los, in, uh, know in Minnesota, are um, I think they'd be perfectly happy here. I think they would find uh, find that their tastes are. Uh, you know, commensurate to a lot of what's popular here. I think they just like, you know, living in Minnesota for any number of reasons, having to do with um, uh, a more navigable city, you know, uh, uh, proximity to um, safe bicycling and sports, uh, proximity to family, proximity to the sort of nature they want to interact with, lakes, forests, rivers, and the uh, the recreation that those provide, you know, um, my brother who's a, a avid deer hunter will probably never leave Minnesota or a state that he could deer hunt in. Um, yeah, overwhelmingly, I feel like there's a, a lot of commonality between my Minnesota friends and my friends here in Los Angeles in terms of how they see the world, what they want out of the world, what they're what they're cooking at home, the kind of restaurants they're eating in when they go out. And um, I'm not sure if that would have been the case 30 years ago. I think 30 years ago there might have been a starker difference between the kind of people who grew up in the Midwest and remained there and the kind of people who left it and moved to places like Los Angeles and New York and how they ended up eating and expressing themselves. I mean, certainly, I get a lot of um, enjoyable um, compliments from Midwesterners who read a section of the pack Prager chapter that seems to dress down um, hipsters with uh, very particular dietary requirements. But I've noticed that it's quite often older people who view that scene as a, a hatchet job. Oh, yes. That Younger people, people my age and younger, seem to have more mixed feelings about it or view it as a certain kind of satire or view it as a, as a scene that could happen in any number of places. And 
they don't view it as um, as an indictment as much as a, well they don't view it as an indictment of a, of a culinary opinion as much as a indictment of that particular person you know I think they view it as a more individualized or a specific uh, critique uh, as opposed to a more general one yeah whereas I do think um, you know, people less familiar with uh, folks who make those kinds of choices are um, more willing to dismiss them. You know, more willing to d- dismiss the people in the choices. Yeah, but well, uh, let me tell you this: every time I go back to Minnesota, I see restaurants and bars that look like places I hang out in Los Angeles. I see more and more of them. You know, Los Angeles does not have a uh, a unique or irreplicable infrastructure of fine and creative dining. I think people are people all over the country are willing and able to do a lot of what we do here. Yeah, and well, they like maybe you can't make injera in your kitchen, you know, as well as they do at um, you know, on Fairfax. Sure. But uh, I think now there are people willing to try. Right. And if an Angelina goes to live in Minnesota, they won't have to rely on frozen vegetables anymore. That's yes. over, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, certainly. Or, or peaches from Colorado, unless yes, you no, choose. If, yeah. if you want a Colorado peach, you can get one. But yeah. there will be no need for that, no need to compare <laughs> freshness of photos if you go to the Midwest. And indeed, you can get a bit of a a bit of a glimpse into the world of Midwest food and what it's become and you can get a glimpse into what a family novel is when it's not traditionally speaking a family novel if you read the new book Kitchens of the Great Midwest been exciting readers since it came out in the summer maybe you'll be the next one to get excited by it by my guest today Jay Ryan Straddle Jay Ryan thanks so much you're welcome this has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast I've been Colin Marshall keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org thanks